Euphoria is an incredibly well-known HBO series. I mean, season two was insane. Even just the last two episodes, Lexi's play, there was like rotating sets and oh like going goodness. between that, that play and real life. So the, the craziest thing about that episode was that entire set was all built basically on one stage. But in order to have enough turnaround for the art department, for production, design, everybody, for lighting. We had to go out on location in between each of those little vignettes. So so every set you see, basically there's four to five days in between there, maybe even sometimes a week for like the rotating set that was a little bit bigger of a thing. It's nice with this team like Euphoria because we are like a film family and we understand that, you know, we all have a common goal. We all know it's a crazy job, but we're, we're doing it together. So it works out. Hey guys, I'm Arye. And I'm Christina. And we are your hosts at the Film Up Podcast, where we explore the stories of accomplished filmmakers and creatives and their road to success. Each podcast is dedicated to a nonprofit of our guest choosing. The goal here is for the Film Up Podcast to help filmmakers and help the world at the same time, and we believe you can do both. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Danny Durr. Welcome, Danny. Hey, what's up, everyone? For those of you who don't know, Danny is a lighting genius. He has worked on a variety of projects, including Euphoria, The Good Place, Veep, Insecure, Little Fires Everywhere, Malcolm and Marie, and countless commercials, music videos, and short films. He's also the co-owner of Light Force Rentals, a full-service lighting equipment company. Collectively, their team has over 50 years of experience in the industry, and they pride themselves with focusing their attention on the lighting aspects of storytelling. Danny is also currently collaborating with a nonprofit called RealWorks, so he would like to dedicate this podcast episode to their organization. Their mission is to empower the underserved New York City youth to share their stories through filmmaking, creating a springboard to successful careers in media and beyond. To get involved, you can go to realworks.org. We will also list all the info in the description of this episode. Danny, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And, you know, before we get started and jump into all the awesome filmmaking stuff, I'd love to hear a bit more about Realworks and why it's important to you. Yeah, Realworks was uh, brought on to me by a mentor of mine who has a branch in New York. And oddly enough, they were getting a tour of their space. And they started asking questions about, of course, Euphoria. And then because of that, he kind of linked me up with them. And I gave a couple, uh, I guess, a like a forum. I held a forum with them for their classes. I'm going to deal with some of their fellows that are emphasizing in cinematography. And I just think that it's great, you know, when these kids figure out what they want and what they want to do. It's not a matter of just like, it's a matter of figuring out how to get there and getting access to those kind of things. I wish something like that was around for me when I was in high school. Well, it's really awesome that you find the time to collaborate with them and give back while also doing a podcast like this and all of the various jobs that that you work on. So um, we all appreciate it. Oh yeah, I'm so grateful. And you know, Outside of all the lighting and the work that you do now, one of the ways that we like to start off this podcast is learning about where you started, learn about some of the successes, the failures, the journey that you took to get here. So we'd love to know what got you into filmmaking in the first place and where did it all begin? Yeah, I was kind of my, so my 
business partner, who's also my father, is also a rigging gaffer in, in the industry. So I kind of grew up around it. And then my brother now is also gaffing. So we really like the family dinners really become very business saturated. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of work talk, you know, still trying to figure out the separation of work and uh, family time. But uh, at a very young age, I just very wanted much to be involved in filmmaking. And of course, I think when you're a kid, you're like, oh, I want to be a director. I want to do this. And then as you start to learn more about what everybody does and the division of departments, you know, I, gave, I became very much involved in the photography aspect and the lighting was just a natural progression for me. Was there any hope for you not to be a filmmaker or was it just written in the stars? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it's tricky because I think my parents, you know, because of the demands and the hours that it takes, of course, they're like, well, maybe there's something else you could do. But then also like bringing me in to work often and stuff. It's kind of like you're not giving me really a chance to get away from it too. <laughs> but no, it was kind of, uh, yeah, it was kind of kind of meant for me, I think. Well, you know what I think is so awesome about gaffing and the process of lighting in general? When people think about a film, I mean, when you're, when you're a filmmaker, you know a lot of the intricacies to what it takes. But when you're watching a film, you don't necessarily think of some of these nuanced skill sets that are required to make a film. So for yeah. instance, sound. If you can't hear the film, you're not going to be able to watch it if it's, a, of course, a film that's based on being able to hear the audio. If you can't see the film, the lighting wasn't correct, you're not going to watch it. If the script is bad, you're not going to be able to stay engaged. And so gaffing is really a cornerstone to the entire project. But I am kind of curious to how your family got involved in it. It's an interesting thing. That's not something you hear every day where we're a family of gaffers. Like how I did, know it's, yeah. it's, it's funny too, because like a lot of people when they ask like, oh, where are you from? I'm like, oh, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. Uh -huh. And a lot of people, which I have a great admiration for people that come from you know, they're like, I came from Indiana, New York. I packed my bags. I had $500. I came to LA to pursue these dreams. And I was just kind of like, oh, I was just kind of like here, you know, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I take it for granted, but, uh, we just had a lot of access. I, my father worked at a rental house before he got into the film industry. So when I say like, I got picked up in a three ton truck in first grade and got taken <laughs> to the shop. And I was like running around the shop causing like, you know, chaos, of course. But um, yeah, it's, it's tricky. Like, and now like with my business, I'm bringing my sister in and we're really like, you know, a family organization. It's kind of great. And were your parents, were they originally involved with lighting on sets or was your family just in the lighting business and realized that this was something that could be tied to filmmaking? Oh, I think my dad, my dad went to film school. Okay. Um, he, I think it definitely started with his love and passion and then kind of passed it down to us. Mm. And as I became more interested, you know, the access with him reading uh, magazines like American Cinematographer and stuff like that, uh -huh. I just naturally, you know, became interested in that stuff. And also, maybe as a young age, it was a way to like me to connect with my father, you know, because we didn't get a lot of time while he was working. So when he was home from work, these are the things that he was interested in. So I became very interested in it. So in terms of your journey, obviously, you had the inclination to get into gaffing, but it's not that simple. It's a really technical business that requires a ton of knowledge and commitment and education continuously. Mm -hmm 
continued education. So for you, obviously you were introduced to it at a young age, but there's still elementary school, middle school, high school, college. Yeah. So when you went to college and post-grad, were, I mean, were you studying filmmaking? What was the journey like there? What were some of the first projects that you found yourself independently working on? Yeah, I mean, early on in high school, I was always the kid that was like trying to film, like just recording stuff. And then like my senior project, I got like 30 of my friends to like play in this little short. It was a PSA for like suicide prevention. Oh, wow. And it was this, it was this idea that like every character when you change the angle was a different person. And it, you know, it didn't quite come out the way that I thought <laughs> high school, but it like, but, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was fun to do. And then, working into junior college and then UCLA extension and stuff like that, meeting other creatives that were also going on to work in the field. That's kind of where it all started to blossom for me. And I think like working with AFI, uh, I didn't go to AFI. I wanted to at one point, but uh, there's huge opportunities with working on fellows thesis there. And that's, that's another thing that I, I try and do now is I'm, I'm in contact with tons of people from AFI and they're always asking for help. And I'm like, I can give some advice. I can give equipment. Um, I can't quite work on the projects like I'd like to on all of them, of course. But, um, I think that's a great grounds for, you know, cultivating, developing relationships and networks. So in terms of what you were studying and what you were practicing, it sounds like you were filming, like you were running around with the yeah. camera and getting people to be, um, you know, on screen. But obviously you geared toward being a gaffer. Was there a point where you considered a different role? Oh, yeah, I think <clears throat> I think still like I wanted to shoot and I shot stuff early on and I kind of fell into the, the gaffing is because it was something that I, I knew I could do and I had access to and a lot of exposure with. So I kind of told myself I gave myself some deadlines where like by this year, this year, I want to achieve this and this. And then by the next year, I can move on to this. And I still have a long time to figure out the gaffing thing. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> every day, honestly, every day, every job, I'm learning something new, which I think is great. But uh, maybe one day there's there's some shooting. Sometimes, sometimes I like to trick myself that maybe I could produce something. I don't know, but <laughs> you definitely can. I believe in you. <laughs> so we want to touch on some of the specific projects you've worked on, and you briefly mentioned Euphoria. And Euphoria is an incredibly well-known HBO series for many reasons, one being the visual elements in the cinematography. So we'd love to learn more about the process of lighting those scenes. You know, when the director, Sam Levinson, and the DP, Marcel Rev, come to you and say, this is what we're thinking as the gaffer, how, how do you go from there? Yeah, it's tricky. You know, my I always feel like my role is part creative but very much technical too and it's really translating those thoughts and ideas that they have and seeing what tools i have that can kind of accomplish all of that and it, that's kind of like how it happens sometimes sometimes there's very meticulous thought out plans where we know we have to do like certain things and we've been planning for weeks upon months for it and then sometimes there's moments where it's just like you know sam might say something along the lines this doesn't feel right it feels should feel like this it should do this and and then that gets translated to Marcel in the, in his technical world, and then it gets passed down to me. And it's sometimes it's trial and error. Sometimes sometimes it happens right away, and that was like that was it. Just tweak this a little bit. And then sometimes you have to you know figure out two different things and 
kind of like my way of working, I like to have multiple options. You always have, you always have like your grand plan, right? But sometimes that just, just doesn't work. You have to have something to go to. You have to have something to pull out of your pockets. So yeah, it's tricky on a show like that. It's definitely not like every other show. We do get some, some liberties and leisure with the time aspect, I think, which is nice for us. Uh, I think a lot of TV shows are just kind of like, uh, I don't want to say cookie cutter, but it's like you get your wide, you get your over, you get your close up, you get what you get, and then you move on. And then with a show like Euphoria, if if they want to do something different or we have to reshoot something, they're going to take the opportunity to do that to, so that Sam can get his story across. Yeah, I mean, season two was insane. And I'm, I'm so curious about the planning process behind it, because even just the last two episodes, Lexi's play, there was like rotating sets and like going, oh my going between that, that play and real life. Like how, what was the planning process for that so specifically? The, the craziest thing about that episode was that entire set was all built basically on one stage. But in order to have enough turnaround for the art department, for production, design, everybody, for lighting, we had to go out on location in between each of those little vignettes. So so every set you see, basically there's four to five days in between there, maybe even sometimes a week for like the rotating set that was a little bit bigger of a thing. So you had to, we had to constantly plan and check in on what was happening while we were also shooting. So it became, it became a lot of work just to make sure that all the details were there. And with, with the proper support from a, my rigging team, working with everybody else in rigging, we were able to like figure it all out. So there are varying degrees of filmmakers who follow our channels, who will be listening to this and some people who will be able to get this right from the beginning and some people who might need a more elementary explanation because they haven't yeah. heard of some of these processes. So we'd love to know what is the step-by-step -step approach that you might take. So they have the scene and then do you go to location, bring your equipment, set it up? Do you write it out on a on a document and then collaborate <laughs> with your other team members? Does it change every single time depending on the set or the location? It, it's really, you know, generally you scout, you get your one-liner and it's all broken down with what you're going to shoot for the next two, three months, right? And then you scout everything at the beginning. But the tricky thing about doing it that way is like some of the stuff that you've scouted might be completely different by the time you get there in a mm -hmm. month, whether it be from the weather, whether it be like, well, we lost this house because so-and-so won't let us do this. The location can't do this. So you're constantly re-scouting as well. And then if you're not re-scouting, you're sending your rigging team to scout. And they're they're just gathering because you're just constantly gathering information and reacting to everything that's coming in. On stage, it's a little bit different because we have complete control down to like, we can move this wall, this ceiling piece can come up, the lights can move. But on location, it becomes like you're kind of at the liberty of the city, the residents. Then there's, then there's everything else that comes with the production, with the, with the availability. And then it's like, oh, we were going to shoot this on a Monday, but now so and so is not available Monday. They're available next Friday. So that just shifts everything. <laughs> so you're just constantly reacting. And I think everybody is just trying to work together. It's, it's nice with this team like Euphoria because we are like a film family and we understand that you know we all have a common goal we all know it's a crazy job and uh it takes a lot out of us but we're, we're doing it together so it works out nicely so what might be an example of a shot on euphoria where perhaps you did a, a ton of prep work perhaps it was an outdoor scene and then the elements changed in some capacity where it threw everything for a loop was that something that happened on euphoria before oh, have yeah. you ever had any nightmare oh, yeah. situation yeah we, we'd love to hear hear a story <laughs> 
Yeah, they're, they're not nightmares. They're just like kind of like surprises. And sometimes, you know, I guess with it's the internal anxiety and stress with how the things happen. It's funny because everybody sees the final product, like you said, right? They see, they say, oh man, that was amazing. But like to build up to what it got to get there and all the people that had to like hustle and figure out like, okay, problem solved right now, go to it. <laughs> and one of the things is like, you know, um, there were some things with a lot of lighting cues that Sam actually writes in, I think, to his his storytelling to like set a mood or s- tell something. And the opening party scene was kind of like, one, we had talked about, you know, shooting night stuff, not on ectochrome as much. It was going to be more of a balance between like ectochrome and some other film. And then as they saw more ectochrome, it was like, hey, we want to try and shoot it at night. And then, so when we originally scouted it, it was, hey, we're going to do this Kodak 500. Don't worry. You're going to have enough light. And then as it got closer, it's like two weeks. I was like, well, we might want to try ectochrome. And then like a week later, it's like, so we're going to shoot ectochrome. And, <laughs> and then for me, it just causes, you know, it's a tremendous amount of work just to have extra work, extra manpower, extra lights. And then even on the day, it was like, some of the lighting cues were just like, hey, we want to make all the lights dim. And it's like, luckily, <laughs> luckily we have that support and we have the ability to do that, you know? So, but it's not a simple request. Like there, there's a lot of moving parts. <laughs> I mean, once it gets asked from me, I have to talk to my programmer who has to build all the cues and write everything down. And Tim Vandalin, who's been with me now for, uh, since season one of Euphoria is, I think, one of the fastest in the business that, you know, he kind of spoils me because then once I go everywhere else, I'm just like, what's taking so long? This is like, this should happen already. But it takes him, you know, five to 10 to build something. And then it takes Mm -hmm. my guys 10 to 15 to figure out and position everything or whether we have to steal some dimmers from another spot to bring over. And then it's trying it. And then it's like, well, that didn't work. How can we? How can we make that a little bit better? Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to touch on the film family aspect of Euphoria because every single time that any of you share content or you promote anything, it's so apparent that all of you help promote each other's posts all the way down to the actors and actresses on the account. We can't help but notice that every time anyone on the film crew shares a post, Zentea always shares it to her stories. Yeah, That's such a beautiful space that you don't see very often uh, on a lot of these film sets. Yeah, and I think that it's, you know, we've we've done season one together. Some of us collectively worked on Malcolm and Marie out of COVID, which was like a very small, intimate crew that we all came to know each other a little bit more. And then season two, which was like a whole year, really it was like a two-year process with COVID because we were supposed to start day one when we got shut down on COVID. Like we, it was like March 13th, is going into the weekend and everybody's like, we're going to film. We, we had done all this prep, like two months of prep to start filming. And then uh, we got shut down. So that was like a two to three year process. And then, you know, oftentimes you'll find crew members where it's just like, okay, that's a wrap. Go your separate ways. We're done. But with us, it was like, hey, what's going on? You know, do we want to check out this movie together? Do we? Want-? And it, I think that kind of camaraderie really helps make the process. I feel better because when, when the crew's like, doing well, caring for each other, helping out. They want to give their all to give something, to make something special. You know, if you're going to a job where you're like, man, I really can't stand this guy. I'm going to do just enough. You know, I'm going to do Mm -hmm. just enough to get the job done and not like care about it. And then I can go home. And then when you have a production that's not going to nurture and cultivate that kind of uh, 
environment, I think it becomes hard for the crew to want to give all, you know, when we're, when we're all like committed like that and there's, there's love and there's support for each other. I think you just get something so much special or in the special or special or work. <laughs> it works. It works. <laughs> we know what you mean, <laughs> but you know, you mentioned Malcolm and Marie, which is a very unique film. Well, one, because a lot of the euphoria crew actually worked on that film during COVID. It was obviously the height of COVID and it was unique in the financial structure because the crew actually had equity in the film, which is very uncommon. Yeah. And, and that, that is actually the hardest project I've ever worked on. Wow. <laughs> No, just, just, just because like, you know, we didn't have the resources. We had to all wear multiple hats upon hats. Um, the crew was very small. You know, when I first got approached by it in the thick of just the shutdown, the pandemic, it was kind of like, Hey, we want to make this movie. It's going to be you and a couple lights. And I'm like, okay, this is like going to return to my roots of just like, you know, student filmmaking, let's do it. And then it became, it grew. It's like, hey, we're going to travel to Carmel. Hey, we need all these lights. We're going to shoot on black and white film. And it all just kept getting, you know, once once I was like committed, I was like, okay, we're going bigger than I thought this was going to be. But I think that even that, we were the first production to start out of COVID, which I think is great because we were, we were able to share some of the things that we found out, what works, what didn't work type thing. You know, it's, I'm not going to lie when I say it's like, it's nice to say we were the first. And then of course the point sharing, which was great. Not everybody got it, but like a lot of the key department heads were given it. And that, that's worked out great so far because there are projects where you do it and it's, it doesn't work out you know, or you don't get quite what you thought you were going to get. Right. And I, I believe it sold for 30 million to Netflix, correct? In, yeah. in 2021, which yep. is incredible. And you mentioned that it's black and white. Do you have to, as a gaffer, prep differently to light black and white versus color? Yeah, I think um, coming up with the plan for Marcel shooting, we shot, the most exciting thing about that film for me was like, we're going to shoot black and white double X Kodak 35 millimeter. And I'm like... <laughs> uh Schindler's list was shot on that <laughs> you know so so you you're you're able to like I'm very lucky to work on film right now I think there's a lot of people in my generation coming up that have they either started when like film wasn't even an option um when I started film was the only thing and I can remember like these new digital cameras and then the digital lights and everything just kind of evolving and to see it come back around I'm very grateful that I get to work on that. And with Marcel and lighting it, it's very contrasty. So we could get away with shooting some things that if it was, you know, in color, you'd like, that doesn't look like night. You know, there's so much light there that doesn't look like night. But we could light it so that uh, he was playing with the contrast levels and the exposure levels on it where you could get away with like really white backgrounds on a with a grayer surface or something, you know, and it still looks like night. It doesn't look like day. That's really cool. And it, it was mainly a shot in one house, right? Yeah, it was one house, 14 nights in a row. We worked from, <laughs> we worked basically from like uh, 6, we'd go in like at 6 p.m. and we'd drive, you know, we'd go in when the sun was still up and then we'd go home when the sun was coming up. And uh, before that, we had to quarantine for 14 days before we shot the 14 days and wow. that in itself was just like this weird social experience to me experiment to me because we like 
We're at this shut down hotel. No one's there. It's just us. And it was just like kind of out of the like, are we going to, we should have recorded that too. You know, I was like, is this the shining? What is happening right now? You have to keep yourself sane and stuff a little bit. But yeah, it was, it was a great experience. Cool. And one more question for the financial structure and the equity. What, what's the story behind that? Was there one person who was like, I want most of the people to get a point on this? How did that come about? Yeah, I think it was, you know, when Marcel had called, he was like, hey, we want to make this movie. And I'm like, oh, great, let's make this movie. He's like, but we don't want to pay anybody. And I'm just like, oh, okay. <laughs> He's like, but we'll give you this. And, you know, for what it sold for, honestly, I had no expectations going into it. I was just kind of like, maybe I'll sell for this and, you know, whatever. But to me, I was like, well, Sam and Marcel want to do something. You know, I love working with them. I want to continue to work with them as much as I can. And if they believe in something, I believe in it too, you know. So I've done projects now with Marcel that have been like, I know financially it might not be worth it sometimes, but I know that like cultivating what he wants to do and helping him out with that kind of stuff is going to open more opportunities for both of us. And uh yeah, I've done... Now I've done, I've done like the first job I ever met Marcel on was a PSA right before Euphoria. And it was like for 250 bucks, which is wow. not, I'm not gonna, I'm not trying to say it's not a lot of money, but like for our, for our scale, that's like a third of what we might normally make on some stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it led to Euphoria. So things, things all work out in the end sometimes. So in terms of the 14-day shoot, you know, you're probably starting off strong. You're fully energized. You got all your plans. You're ready to rock. (laughs) At what point does the energy start to shift? And when when do you feel like your needs start to shift? And and the the team camaraderie is like probably Yeah, I would say day five, night five. You know, it was tricky because I was fortunate enough to bring my brother with me as my best boy and operated as my dimmer board op who without him he you know i probably couldn't have done that job the way that we did it and then i brought two of my best friends who really had you know one had no experience in the film industry and one had maybe a year in the union and so to me that was like okay my support system is here to help me make it through this right but then we had two grips and then one of the grips got hurt and then it became we all have to help each other now and that's where things got a little tricky but it all worked out in the end it was, you know, originally, I think it was supposed to be a 12-day shoot. And I think they added two more nights because we had to reshoot a couple of things uh, to get it right. And, you know, that, pro- that process too, uh, if I could speak to it, like the process of filmmaking, sometimes you have to shoot things. We've shot scenes over and over, you know, the same scene even. And that mentally can be kind of a nuance because you're like, we just did this. We just did this. But until you know the bigger picture of what Sam wants and why something doesn't work or why something works better another way, you know, we, we just have to trust that he's steering the ship the right way. And it generally works out. That moment when they said you have two more days of shooting, did that Ugh. hit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was tough. It was just like, oh, well... You know, we we have, not that we have to, but like, what are we going to do? Do a movie that's only 80% done? You have to finish the movie, you know? Yeah. Wow. uh, Yeah, it it worked out in the end. So in terms of the mentality to make a film versus the mentality to make a series, how does that impact your planning and your approach? Because obviously a film is kind of consistent in a sense, all the way through. And in an episodic series, you might have different episodes that require different lighting, or you might have a theme that goes through all of the episodes. Um, Walk 
us through that. Yeah, it's different because normally I feel like in television and series, you get alternating DPs, you get multiple directors that are prepping while one's shooting. So you're getting a different director every time. So for that, you have to, I feel like you have to, you have to stay true to the show, but you also have to be freeform enough where you can work with different DPs. Cause I've done a show where one DP loves doing it this way. Like, you know, do a big broad lighting source. We book light it, we double diffuse it. And then the other guy will just be like, no, just put a light right here, shoot direct, you know? Mm -hmm. And you still have to find a way to keep that consistency within the show. And then of course, when other directors come in, they all have different ideas of how they want to tell their story. The great thing about features and even on Euphoria, just having Sam and Marcel do the whole thing, it was like, the one advantage was like while we were shooting, we could I could also ask him about stuff sometimes. You know, if it wasn't like too crazy of a setup and then I could kind of like throw in like, hey, for next week, can we do this? Can we try this to get it out of him? As opposed to like on a series, I might have to have let someone cover me and I'd have to go to the office and talk to the next person that's prepping. Mm -hmm. uh, it just all requires a different amount of attention to detail, I guess you could say. Do you have a preference in terms of having more freedom to create the the lighting of the space or more, um, re you know, regulation around it? They specifically want it this way. Please execute yeah. it this way. Yeah, no, I think it's... Uh I always tell DPs in the beginning, whether it's like through the interview process or the hiring process, that I'm not really interested in being a parrot. I'm very much one that wants to collaborate. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, I don't want to do your job for you. You're getting a much higher rate than I am. You know, it's there's, there's things that you that you are doing in your responsibility. But I do feel that it's very important to be collaborative in some aspect because I don't want to me, if I'm, if I'm doing a project where it's like, Hey, you know, everything, you just want to tell me to do it. I'll do it, whatever you want. I for me personally, I just, I don't get as much out of it. You know, when I feel like I get to contribute and come up with things together with somebody, I think that's usually the, the happy ground between everything because, you know, I've done jobs too, where I have to do everything. And it, it's, it's kind of nice to be like, well, I get to do everything. But, you know, you don't always get all the credit for everything, too. You're still, you know, it's it's a it's a fine line there for me. Yeah. And in, speaking of different roles, I know you've worked as a gaffer, obviously, and then also chief lighting technician. When it comes to those two, what what's the one difference? One in the same. Oh, they're the same thing. One in the same. Okay. One in the same. Okay. Gaffer is just a, uh, I guess, an old school term that was used. Chief lighting technician became, it's really a lawyer term, I guess, because for our unions, they wanted it to be a, a technician and not, not a, I guess, to, to justify pay rates and stuff like that. Yeah. So <laughs> chief lighting technician probably came around in the early 2000s, I think, when the union started like defining the roles with lighting console programmer, you know, assistant chief lighting technician, as opposed to just like gaffer, best boy, dimmer board op and stuff like that. Yeah. And so for Euphoria specifically, what does the lighting team look like? So the department, so you have Marcel as the cinematographer, then you have his three departments that really work under him. You have the first AC that runs the camera department. You have the gaffer that runs the lighting department and you have the key grip who kind of is like the the support system to the entire production. I mean, the grip department, you know, works with us with lighting, but they also work with the camera department. And then they also work with art department getting things hung. They're they're really the backbone, I feel like. Don't let, I hope too many grips aren't listening to this, but like <laughs> they're really the backbone of like everything that gets done because everybody's like, everybody's going to the grip department for some sort of assistance, you know? 
and within the lighting department, there's me, and then there's my parallel that works under me, who's the chief rigging lighting technician or the rigging gaffer. And he's doing the, the setup, the physical, really the physical work, I guess, like laying in all the cables, setting up the lights. And then under him, he has his best boy, his rigging programmer and four guys and then maybe five fixture people and then they pick up five to ten guys depending on locations and stage rigs and then within my department i have my my assistant chief lighting technician my console programmer my systems tech that works with the programmer and all the wireless but is also working with the rigging department and then i have about five guys on my team that have uh and we pick up what we call day players as Mm. needed so many people (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, each yeah, it's a lot of people. I think sometimes at our craziest, when we're jumping from like location to location and rigging a stage, we can have anywhere from I would say fifty to sixty. You no, know, maybe forty to fifty people. Wow. You know, just like we could have ten to twelve people on first unit, we call, and then ten guys at each location doing stuff. It's just it's it's a headache for production and the budget. So, in terms of your career, I mean, success and failure is relative to everybody, and what might feel like a success or a failure to you might be different to someone else. I'm curious, over the entirety of your career, what was a moment that felt um, very successful, very accomplished for you relative to to your work? Was there something you could think back on that you were like, wow, that was a pretty cool moment? Yeah, you know, for me, I'm always trying to be conscious of, I guess, in the moment and present. And like some people will even ask me, like, how do I get to this level that you're at? And I'm like, you can go far beyond the level that I'm at, first of all. And how, like you said, how are you gauging it? Like, what if I told you, you could work on a short film where you're going to meet somebody that you're going to go on to work with for 20 years, you know? As opposed to like, okay, you'll do one $20 million project and you might not get a shot again. Like, how do, how are you valuing that? And for me, a big part of it for me was when I made the commitment to start gaffing. Uh, I met some people that we were kind of were like-minded and uh, had the same goals and pushed each other to like, okay, we're going to do this short. And, you know, a lot of people along the way will also be like, why are you leaving a full-time show? Why are you leaving this job to go work on this Friday for no money for, you know, for $150 a day non-union. But thinking about the bigger picture of everything, I was always like, well, if this $150 is going to help me learn something or do something that I want to do, that's far more valuable than like the five or $600 I can make on a day or something. I think, I think a lot of people tend to have the problem of, of putting a dollar amount to, to success and something, right? And if you're not making this much money, then you're not this successful. Right. And so it almost sounds like in hindsight, some of the things that you feel particularly proud of is when you went to do those projects that can't really be explained from oh, yeah. a, a professional standpoint. Like I'm doing this short film, I'm working for free, I'm connecting and collaborating with these other filmmakers just for fun. And oftentimes some of your success was really rooted from those moments as yeah. opposed to just the traditional job. I tell I tell a lot of people in, that are trying to start because I got I, you know, I was in the same position at one point where it's like, well, do I go to film school or do I work? Right. And that's where it starts. And then it's like, okay, well, do you want to learn or do you want to make money? And then people that are coming up in the industry, I feel like if if you're doing this to, because you want to make money, you should find something else to do because Mm -hmm. it requires a lot. It's demanding a lot of sacrifice. Um, If you love to do it and this is, you know, these are the things that you, you want to tell stories, you want to, 
you want to build these relationships and move forward, then do it for those reasons. You know, I think the thing for me when I was young, the camaraderie of it, being around all the guys and, you know, Mm -hmm. that was the thing that was like most drawn and interesting to me. Like, oh, we're working with a team of people here. We're all, we're collaborating. You know, it's like, it's really like, it's almost like a team sport. And that was like the more interesting aspect of it to me for other than, than the monetary, all, all that stuff. I always feel like comes later, you know, Mm. just like Malcolm and Marie, we did it. We didn't do it with any expectations. We're just like, just do it. Something, something happens from it. It's going to be great. And if it doesn't, I got to shut, I got to shoot something on black and white. It was freaking (laughs) awesome. That's, that's my mentality. And conversely to successes, what would be a moment that you could think about in your career where it felt like a failure? Obviously, in hindsight, a lot of our failures are what have also led to our successes. But in the moment, was there something where you're like, man, this just really sucks? Yeah, there's been some jobs uh, I've done where I just wasn't into it. And that's something for me personally, too, that I'm still trying to find that balance of like, I want to work as much as I can and ride the ride the wave and stay hot or whatever it is as long as I can. But I also have to be cautious about like taking projects that I'm not really giving my all to or that I'm not really interested in. And I've been on projects where it's like everything was great, but like I just wasn't into it, you know, and it, it almost felt like I was just like, well, do I want to should I do something else? Should I do this? And I don't know. That's just me personally. That's how I feel because I feel like we're giving so much to this craft that if you're not getting the same kind of like return, whatever it is, you want to call it your meta, your spiritual, your mental return in it, then like, what's the point of doing it? You know, it's tricky for me because right now there is a lot of opportunity, which is great. But I also have to be cautious about like, okay, maybe I have to take a step back from this project and not try you know, whether it's give myself some more time to figure out everything too. That's a, it's an important thing. Yeah, that makes sense. And I know you work on so many different projects, but if you could pick one lighting package, what, what are your favorite lights to work with and and why? Yeah, lately, uh, it's been a lot of, you know, I've been very in tune with like the Astera tubes and a lot of the light gear stuff and the LED stuff, just because it gives us the most freedom to just kind of work on the fly with the programmer. I still, don't get me wrong, I still love like traditional tungsten, hard light. You know, it's just there's something about the quality of like a beam projector that you can't beat. But freeform, I, I, a lot of the LED stuff and that stuff is evolving so fast. There's new stuff coming out almost daily, I feel like. That stuff, you know, there's something coming out from Light Gear right now that's also like, it's playing with a lot of color and to see the opportunities that you can try and like achieve with that is going to be an exciting thing. Do you ever do any um, partnerships with any of these organizations or collaborate with them? Uh, yeah, I've worked with them a little bit. Um, I've done some R and D work with, for, uh, for light gear with some of the stuff that they've had, you know, oftentimes there are other companies that will reach out and try and, uh, have me test run their light, try it out. Um, I'm working with Felix Light a little bit about some of the stuff they got coming out. It's it's tricky too because, like I said, there's so much stuff out there, and you don't want to. I got to be cautious about like what I am picking up and trying to use too. You know. And uh, I'm curious because you said you're you're still hungry to learn, and not only that, but there's a lot for you to learn. When you say that, what are some of the things that you're looking into as continued education? Where do you think that there's more for you to know? 
Yeah. A lot of the things that I feel like I'm picking up on the set are coming from DPs. And part of that is also like, that's the collaborative process. You know what I mean? You find that somebody does this this way and you're like, oh, I really liked how that turned out. I'm going to put that into the arsenal. And that was something that I did as a technician growing up. I was like constantly taking notes on like, okay, this lighting setup allows you to do this, or they did this for this reason. Those things, the things that I've learned from all the people that I've worked with have really helped mold how I like to do things, you know? Like whether or not this person communicates this way and is very thorough in the details, and then this person is like technically does things this way. Those things, you're just constantly building your your arsenal and you're building to your repertoire of how you wanna how you wanna do things, how you wanna communicate with people. Um, all that stuff. And as, as we kind of get closer to the end here, we like to do the segment called Rapid Fire, where we ask some fun questions. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll start off with the first one, which is if you could bring only one light to all the sets for the rest of your career, what light would that be? Uh, a beam projector. <laughs> An eight, uh, 20K beam projector, because... That is the hardest light to get, and it's like also one of the most expensive lights. That, Strategic that are always, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And and that manufacturer doesn't sell the light; you can only rent it from one manufacturer. So it's like to get that light, it's like it's kind of a process. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, second question: What's the weirdest DM you've ever received? Oh my goodness. You know, there's a lot of people that are reaching out and I try and help as much as I can within reason. And then there are some things where like, so-and-so is the Illuminati and let me show you the truth. Or can you give this to so-and-so to give to so-and-so to give? And I'm just like, what? Who do you think I am? Like, just because I'm on the set with somebody, you know, doesn't necessarily mean we're communicating hand in hand. I have to maintain a certain level of professionalism to an extent before before you can like break those grounds right so just because you're on the set doesn't mean you're like hanging out watching movies with that person <laughs> it's not the same yeah definitely and last question is what is a motto that you live by oh wow that's a that's a big one i always try to have as much fun as possible doing everything that i can and there is there is a time of you have to be very professional you have to get the job done but at the root of it, if you're not having fun in your life and doing it, then like it goes back to what's the point of doing it, you know? Love it. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the final questions, Danny, that we like to wrap up on are what are some of the projects that you're currently working on? Is there anything you might need from people that follow our account or any people that you recommend reaching out to you, any resources, things like that? And we'd love to just hear what you're currently up to. Yeah. Uh, I'm finishing up this movie in Pittsburgh. It's a Tom Hanks movie, which is exciting. Uh, after this, I'll go to Atlanta to work uh, on a Marvel project, which is going to be a whole nother realm that I'm another world that I'm entering. I guess I feel like that's very, I have to familiarize myself with a, a corporate structure a little bit more. I might disappear mm -hmm. on the Instagram for like a little bit because they're very tight when it comes to security <laughs> and Marvel stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, but stay involved, help people um, that are, you know, interested in making the same career paths and choices that you want. Be involved with uh, 
reach out to RealWorks and other nonprofit organizations that are pushing these kind of uh, opportunities for people because I feel like all the opportunity that I haven't gotten has started from something much smaller. And I think that if people can understand that, like, you might want to get somewhere, you have to start somewhere very small. And it goes back to like that planting that seed type thing, I guess. And so you're going to work on, you're going to work on projects that you might not want to work on. You're going to, but on those things, you're also going to meet people. You're going to make sacrifices and you're going to meet like-minded people that are also going to want to accomplish the same things that you want and just keep doing all that until you get to where you are. And don't ever, don't ever like say like, I've made it. Cause once you've made it, you got nowhere to go but down. So I honestly <laughs> tell myself, well, people, you know, people are always like, Oh, you have all this. You're doing the success. I'm like, yeah, but I want to keep going. I don't want to stop right here. I'm not trying to, you know, settle mm-hmm. right now. Well, you know, that's something that we always talk about where, and when you also hear a lot of um, successful creatives always say that having a little bit of self-doubt is really key yeah. because it's making you strive to want to be a better version than your former self. Yeah. So never get too comfortable. No, never. Well, Danny, it's been such a privilege getting to speak with you. And thank you to our incredible audience for tuning in. To contact Danny, you can DM him on Instagram, um, as well as, you know, always reach out to us. And we're happy to connect as well. So thank you so much. Thanks a lot for the time, guys. Thanks, Danny. And thanks again for tuning in, everyone, to the Film Up podcast. I'm Christina, your host. And I'm Arye. Stay tuned for our next episode, dropping every Tuesday. Until next time.